Good morning. Um, today's scripture reading is from Romans 9, 1 through 24. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offering, offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise uh, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing e either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on whom, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you for the reading. A uh, difficult passage, uh, not only to read, but to understand. So I, I actually would really encourage all of you to take some time to study this particular chapter on your own. It's very rich. Uh, you'll learn a great deal. Uh, before I dive into the actual message, I wanted to introduce uh, a few guests joining us for the first time. I, uh, I met um, <clears throat> Joseph Lee. I, I hope I get the names correct. Seungmin uh, is his wife, and... Uh, Seungmin's friend is also here with us, uh, Sue, and they're sitting over there. If you could raise your hand for us in the middle. Let's give them a warm welcome. Glad you can join us. Uh, I also have here Alex and Amanda, who I also just met, and they're sitting in front of them, so also give them a warm welcome. <clears throat> 
I was pleasantly surprised to hear that our brother Hoon Yi got engaged uh, this past week, and he's with uh, uh, his fiance Anne, and they're sitting over on that end. So let's give them a congratulatory haksu. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh boy. Um, honestly, it, this. These topics are not easy to preach from. Um, not that I don't love the doctrines, but they're just not easy to preach from, you know? Uh, so we are continuing this series on the doctrines of grace, and, and today I have some uh, fresh tulips <laughs> to present. And this time, it's like uh, my wife was, was pretty disgusted by, by how I presented the tulips last Sunday. Uh, she took it upon herself to... to be more, I guess, uh, to make it more aesthetically pleasing. And so, as you can see, there's a little twist to it, and it's wrapped up in a bow. And, and so I thought about this, and I think there's actually a, a good teaching point to make uh, based on this simple presentation. Okay, let me, let me first um, remind you all what the five points are. Can we have the slides up, Xiong? Come on, Xiong. Okay, here we go. <laughs> all right, there are the five points. If you're new... Uh, I'm sorry, you missed like several weeks of, of this uh, talk that we're having. But uh, the five points of Calvinism, also known as TULIP, was a response, once again, to the teachings of Jacob Arminius and his followers. They, they sort of um, went against the prevailing teaching of the day and presented the five points of Arminianism. And so the church had to respond with the five points of Calvinism uh, that uh, later became known as TULIP. And so... Uh, we have two more sermons on this. Uh, today we're, we're covering you, uh, and we are kind of going out of order uh, because we said that we're going to cover these points based on how we generally experience, experience these graces as, as Christians. So today's you, and then next Sunday's P, and then I'm off on vacation for several weeks, okay? Uh, but you'll probably see me, you'll probably see me, you know, around here. I'm not, we're doing staycation, and so, I mean... I might visit a church here and there, but I think I might come here because I love you guys so much. But here we have a, a fresh bundle of tulips. And let me, let me put it this way. Um, some of you may know people that have told you, look, I am not a five-point Calvinist. Okay, in other words, I reject one of the points. Like they, they say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Have you met such people? I am a three-point Calvinist, right? Do you know some people like that? Uh, I've even met someone who said, I'm a 4 fiver, right? Whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, I try to have him explain, right? He didn't do a very good job. Uh, you know, so some people, they, they want to pick and choose which points they agree on, which points they don't. And I am here to tell you this morning that these five points, tulip, right, these are meant to be a bundle, okay? Uh, and as they say in the marketing world, let me, let me actually raise it for you, right? These cannot be sold separately, okay? Uh, they cannot exist isolated from one another uh, because they are meant to logically hold together, right? Think about it, you know, if you really believe that we are unable to choose God because we are so fallen, so the T, then 
what is your hope? Well, your hope is that God the Father would offer you the grace of initiating this salvation project, right? And he has to choose you. He has to pursue you, right? And then the Son has to follow up and atone for your sins. And the Holy Spirit needs to work, right, to irresistibly woo you so you can be open to approaching the, the Father and the Son in worship. That's how you persevere to the end, right? That's how you make it all the way to the end. That's basically the five points. And so if you reject one, then essentially you are rejecting the others. And if you agree with one, then logically you have to agree with all of the others, okay? I mean, you, you can choose to reject one or two if you want, but uh, what I'm saying is that you will be logically inconsistent <laughs> and, and we'll have to kind of pray for you uh, that you will get, get it together soon, right? Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> What does this particular point address, all right? Uh, the main question this doctrine addresses is, on what basis does God elect his people? On what basis? Right? Is it purely on the basis of his divine will, or does it have something to do with how we ourselves exercise our own free will? And so here I, I present to you the classical uh, Arminian position, uh, and it basically goes like this. Election is based on God's foreknowledge because, you know, they, they, they would argue, you know, God is omniscient. Of course, we'd agree that he's omniscient, but based on his omniscience, right, he is a God who looks into the future, right, and he sees Pastor Andrew struggling for many years until Somehow, Andrew finds himself at a retreat, let's say, and Andrew, he's walking up right to the front, and he is now finally embracing the gospel truth and expressing his love for Christ for the first time. And based on that action that God, who is omniscient, sees in the future, God chooses Andrew to be his own. So what is that saying? That's essentially saying that God's election is based on what Andrew does as a person at some point in his life, right? And so God's election is fundamentally res response to my free choice, right? That, that is a classic Armenian position. Now, what is the correct view, right? Uh, we believe, I hope, I hope all of you would, would, are kind of slowly warming up to this idea if you've sort of been like unsure, but we believe as a church that election is based on God's sovereign will and not on any human condition. And our choice, the fact that Pastor Andrew decided to one day love Jesus right, and worship God is because God chose him first before he was even born, before he even did anything good or bad. Right? That's what Romans 9 actually says, doesn't it? Verbatim. Um. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, Jesus speaking here, but I chose you, right? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Uh, so you have to understand that priority. There is a priority of order there, right? Now, to, to kind of complicate, thing, complicate things a little bit more, there is a contemporary Armenian position, you know, because you know, smart people 
they like to sort of think sophisticatedly, right? <laughs> they like to kind of uh, be creative in their thinking and uh, do whatever they can to sort of make sense of God. And I think some of that effort's noble, but uh, we really can get confused if we overthink this and over-philosophize, right? That's a word. Uh, but here's what they would say, because they have such a problem with the idea of God choosing some over others when it comes to offering special grace, right? They, they, they don't want to think that such a God could exist, and so they do all sorts of mental gymnastics and, and exegetical gymnastics to avoid that conclusion. And so here we go. Here, here's one very common understanding or common interpretation of Romans 9, Right, same passage you read, this is how they would interpret Romans 9, right? You tell me if it makes sense or not because I'm still confused. <laughs> Election is not individual. These are written, this is written by like well-known uh, authors and respected scholars, I guess, uh, in their own right. But Election is not individual but corporate in nature. The point is that the election of the church is a corporate rather than an individual thing, right? Even though the passage itself mentions, I love Jacob and I hated Esau, right? God uses individual examples, and yet somehow this is what they conclude. I don't get it, right? It is not that individuals are in the church because they are elect. It is rather that they are elect because they're in the church, which is the body of the elect one, okay? So I don't know if this persuades you, but the first time I read this kind of thing, it took me like exactly five seconds to say this is, this is ridiculous, right? This is like, is this, is this truly what people are writing, right? Is this really the way people are trying to refute Romans 9? Um, there's a better writer and better thinker. Uh, he's of our Reformed tradition. I, I get this, uh, I got these, this breakdown from a book uh, that I really enjoyed reading. It's a really exciting book. The title is The Doctrine of Predestination, okay? <laughs> One of the most exciting books I've ever read, ever read right? Uh, the, it's called The Doctrine of Predestination. It's on my shelf. If you, if you ever want to borrow it, I'm happy to lend it to you. Uh, it's, it's written by a guy named Lorraine Bettner. And then this, this is uh, an argument he makes. I, I think I thought this was very helpful, so I'm going to share it with you, okay? He, he comes up with these four categories of different types of election that we encounter in life. Okay, and he's arguing basically that essentially all these elections, it's, just, it's the same, like, the same thing in, in nature. Uh, in its essence, it's the same thing. So number one is there is something called individual election, right? And Jacob, I love these. One example, I, I hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? That can be another example. Um, a second category he introduces is the national election of Israel, right? He does not in any way refute the fact that God chose Israel first over the Gentile nations, right? There was an order there as well, right? And we're not saying that all of, you know, the Jewish nation is gonna be saved, but the gospel began there first. It was, it was offered to them first, and then it went to the Gentile nations, you see. And so God chose to work with Israel first is the point. There was a national election. Third category, think about the different positions in life that, uh, you know, we are born into, like some, some of you were born into a Christian home. Right? And you know, at, at one point in your life, you may not have thought that was a blessing, but it's truly a blessing to be born into a Christian home. 
Some are born into, you know, a, a Muslim family in a Muslim region, and it's, it's harder for them to get exposed to the gospel, right? Uh, some are born into wealth. Some are born into poverty, right? I mean, this is the facts of life. Right? Who, who controls that, right? Is it in your hand? Is it in my hand? I can't control that thing. That's ordained by God, see? God oversees these things. And then there are also various other kinds of blessings that we enjoy. You know, some of you are really gifted in music. I mean, who, who wants to stand up here and say they're a better singer than Chanel or, or Esther in our church, right? Uh, Charlie's okay, you know? <laughs> Chanel, I mean, come on. She like, I'm like listening to her this morning, practicing, like, okay, she's, she's maturing. She's really maturing even, you know. She was, she was good before. She's much better than she was like a year ago. I'm like, wow, okay, you know. We are blessed. We're, we're blessed to have such gifted vocalists, right? Um, some are gifted in, you know, uh, I, I guess you, you're born with just a, a higher capacity of intellect, you know, your higher IQ, uh, you're smarter than, you know, the average person. Is that, is that your doing, right? Did you have any, you know, uh, any say in, in how you were going to be born with a, just a higher capacity for intellectual you know, activity in your life? No, that was, that was God's blessing upon you, okay? Some of you are, I don't know, just more athletic, okay? Uh, and so you have guys who do, th or girls, they, they, you know, they're, they're gonna be better at basketball or golf, right? Uh, I'd love to see some of you at, at these tournaments. Uh, Pastor Andrew said it doesn't matter if you're good or bad uh, for the basketball, it actually does matter. You have to be good. See, you have to be good if you want to enjoy the experience. If you're not good, you're going to be like having a miserable day, by the way, right? So he said we're competitive. Yeah, it gets competitive. And if, you, if, you, if you're bad, you're not going to have any fun, right? So you got to be good. Uh, some of you are not, you're not good. The facts of life, okay? Right? Um, and you, you try hard. You know, you try hard, work out in the gym. But honestly, let, let's face it. Some are, some are, a lot of it also, it has to do with how you are genetically, you know? Some jump higher than others. You can improve a little bit over life, but, you know, I mean, there are limits. We have, everyone has a ceiling based on how we were born, you know, physically. Uh, I'll stop there, okay? I can go on and on with these. These are fun examples, but. So his argument is this. Even though, in principle, these four kinds of election are the same, since God is the one who sovereignly and unconditionally chooses whom he will bless, why is it that Christians seem to only have a problem with the first one? Why do you arbitrarily pick and choose what you like and don't like? That, that's a point, okay? And I, I know, I, I know why people, have, I had a problem with this too, to be honest. I had a problem, I'll say that for a little later. Uh, and so let, let me share just a, a perspective that I think will help you swallow this very difficult pill, okay? Um, this is written by, a guy who once taught this in a classroom setting and, and he, he uh, recounts his experience, okay? This is what he writes. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. Okay, so imagine yourself in that setting. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect, or how could God do this? I answered her in this vein, uh, you misunderstand, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven 
and men are thronging to get in the door, and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come in, but not you, not you, and not you. The situation is hardly this, he writes. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come Yet all men, without exception, are running the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in his election, graciously reached, reaches out and stops this one and stops that one and this one over there and that one over there and eventually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. And so election, he writes, keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. So this gives a very different perspective, doesn't it? I think it helps. Right? Not saying it's a perfect illustration, but definitely I think it corrects some of our uh, faulty preconceptions. However, what I really wanna to do today is persuade you that whatever I'm saying, it's not simply my words. These ideas, these concepts, these principles are found from God's word, right? It's, it's God himself who desires for us to understand how his grace operates in our lives, okay? And that, that's, for me, the most important thing. Whether you agree with me or not in the end, that's secondary. But I think the starting point has to be, do you see this clearly from God's word or not? Because if you do, that's the hope I have. That's the hope I have as a preacher, that you would first see these truths revealed to you through the very words of God, right? Not just look at me. Don't look at me. I'm just the messenger preaching God's word, right? So you gotta first see it in order to believe it and embrace it as good and true. So Romans 9 Again, very difficult, weighty passage. It's, it's gonna be uh, so important for you to grapple with this chapter on your own because on, I can't do justice uh, just over 30 minutes on a Sunday morning, okay? But um, let me just introduce to you a few ideas that I think will help. Now, I, I touched upon this maybe a couple weeks ago, but ask the question, what are the two objections that Paul responds to in this chapter regarding God's sovereignty and election? What are the objections? So Paul, Paul is presenting a good case, you know, Romans 8, he's talking about God's sovereignty, Romans 9, he continues, and then he anticipates these objections because these objections are fairly common objections that you know, he had to, I guess, deal with when, when speaking with others, and there are two, two objections mainly, okay? Romans 9, 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, right? Is God being unfair? <laughs> okay. These are questions everyone has, right, when, when talking about, when, when listening to this kind of teaching. Is God being unfair? How, how could he, you know? Then Romans 9, 19, you will say to me then, why does God still finds fault for who can resist God's will if this is true? This is another objection that Paul anticipates because he's dealt with it before. And the key question is this. Again, my, my, one of my goals here is to make sure you see that whatever I'm teaching is rooted in Scripture. 
I'm not making this stuff up. Is it in scripture or not, okay? And this is the way you know, okay? This is a litmus test, okay? If Paul were teaching the Arminian position of, no, no, you misunderstand me, like, you, you're, it's based on your free will, guys, right? You are, God chooses you because, again, God foresaw how you were gonna do in life and you did good, and so based on that, he elects you to be his child. So you have all the say, I mean, you're, you're perfectly, your hand is in this, right? And so if, if that was a teaching, then why would anyone say, well, that's not fair? They would say, oh, okay, that, that gives me sort of peace now. That, that kind of makes sense, humanly speaking. I, I can live with that. But that's not, that's not the objection that is raised. The objection that's raised are these that can only come out of a teaching that is consistent with what we've been saying for the past few weeks, right? These objections are only made possible if the Reformed doctrines of grace are true, is my point. You understand, are you following? I hope that's not too difficult to comprehend. Uh, that is a very powerful argument, if you think about it. But let's further explore some passages from Scripture, and I'm gonna use uh, some of the questions that John Piper had raised in his own presentation of, of this doctrine that I thought was very helpful. I can't do all that he did, but I'll just, uh, Select a few, okay? So let me read the passage first. I want you to just let it sink in for a few seconds and then let me, let me pose a question and see what you think. First right, John chapter six, verse 44, and then uh, 65 that comes later, but uh, same concept, okay? No one, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then it says also, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, and so the question is this. Did God choose us because he knows that we will come based on his foreknowledge? Is that what you think is in view here? Or do we come to God because he first chose to give us the will to come. What do you think makes the most sense based on this passage? What do you think Jesus is trying to communicate, essentially, you know? Another passage. John chapter 17, nine, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are, they are yours. Right? So I think a good question would be, do we belong to God because we come to Jesus? Or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? What's first? Right? What, what comes first in the order of salvation? Right? If you believe that election comes first, right before the foundation of the world was laid, before you even born, God chose, if that comes first, then you have to agree with the latter, right? We come to Jesus because, because we belong to God, because he first chose us. That's why we come to God. Another one. John chapter two, verse 24 through 27. I, I find this one to be 
quite mind-boggling, and this is a, kind of blew my mind when I first understood what Jesus was saying, right? So it says, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Another way to say that, you do not believe because you are not part of my elect. Right? Let me offer a caution. You, you are not God, right? so you should never speak like this. <laughs> right? You don't know who's God's elect. We, that's beyond our knowledge. This, only God can speak like this, right? which is why people were astonished as well, when they heard this. Right, this is only something God knows and only something God could say. Right? If we choose to speak like this, then we're being very arrogant and obnoxious, prideful, out of place. Right? You gotta know your place in life, right? So the question is, are we Jesus' sheep because we believe or do we believe because we are his sheep? What, what comes first, do you think? The fact that we are chosen to be a sheep comes first. Right? That's what allows us to believe later on in life. What else do we have here? John 10, 16 and Acts 18. And I have other sheep that are now this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd in Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid. But go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one's going to attack you to harm you, for I have many, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are mine, who are part of my flock. So the question is, I think this is very helpful because some some of us we misunderstand the situation and we think evangelism, missions work is all on us. Like we gotta go out there, we gotta persuade people, you know, we gotta do a good job, and if, you know, if we say the wrong thing, oh my goodness, if we say the wrong thing, oh my goodness, souls will be lost if we say the wrong thing. No, no, no. You, you can't expect to be perfect in your presentation all the time. You will make mistakes, right? You'll, you'll be, you will be clumsy at times with how you articulate your faith, that's okay. It is evangelism and missions, as the question says, mainly about you going out there by your own effort, making sheep, right? persuading people to be sheep, or is it about you going out there faithfully as best you can, proclaiming the gospel, sharing God's word, so that God could gather his sheep, that God could gather his elect, his people that he has chosen before the foundation of the world. God, God is on a mission to gather the people that he's chosen, you see. That, that's the Reformed perspective. And that, that should give us great hope and confidence as we go to Colville. Okay. It is Colville, by the way, right? You can, you can call it Colville, but uh, my, my wife, my brother-in-law, he served in Colville for many years as a medical missionary, so I know it's Colville, right? Is that right? That's good, right? So, you know, when you go out to Colville or wherever, right, 
Right? What mindset do you have when you engage in missions? Right? Do you put that unnecessary burden on your shoulders? Say, I, I gotta be like on my game, you know? I can't slip up. Or is your confidence in the Lord who will do his work? Uh, I'd like for us to now consider, and this message, by the way, is not gonna be too much longer. I'll, I'll try to wrap up soon, but I'd like for us to consider how this particular doctrine is meant to uh, practically shape the Christian life, okay? Because again, one, you know, one, I think, common question I have heard in the past is like, if this is true, Pastor, like, why, why do we pray? Why do we even bother praying? Not, not only why do we bother, you know, to do evangelism or mission, but why do we pray if, if God is this, is this, you know, you say he is. If he, know, if he chooses everything on his, based on his sovereignty, why bother? Well, here's what Michael Horton writes. I'm always puzzled by the question, why pray for somebody's salvation if election is true? After all, if election is not true, and God is waiting on pins and needles, hoping, that, hoping along with us that folks will use their free will properly, then surely that is reason enough to leave prayer out of it. You might expect God to say, look, I, I really appreciate the attention. You know, I, really, I really appreciate that you're falling on your knees to pray, but there's really nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. I, I gave the person their free will already, and now we'll just have to wait and see what happens. If God does not, if God does not overrule our hearts and invade our lives until we invite him to do so, what's the use in asking God to overrule hearts and to bring people to Christ? So it's a different perspective. Right? And, and you know where I side, right? I mean, you know, the, the truth is that we actually can pray with great hope and confidence because we know that God has complete sovereign control over the lives of people and, and hearts and minds, you see. That's why, we, that's why I pray. I don't know why, you, why you're praying, but that's why I pray. Right? And then you have, oh, let's see. Did I, uh, did I do that already? No. Okay. okay, how about this one? Right. Why does God need us to evangelize when he has already chosen who will be saved? Another question some of you might have, why, why bother evangelizing? Well, that's similar to asking why one needs to buy a ticket, pack, and take an airplane to London when one already has decided to go to London. Right? When one decides to go somewhere or do something, it is necessary to determine also how that end is to be achieved. Right? God has not only determined that we will be saved, but how we will be saved. It's through faith in Christ, which comes through the proclamation of the word. And so this simply is highlighting the fact that God has ordained not only the end, not only the, the end goal, but also the means, right, to get to the end. And so what, what's the means? What's the means of salvation? It, it's, it's evangelism, it's proclamation of the word, it's prayer, right? And so we can't neglect this because we think that, oh, God's gonna... He's determined the end, and no, he's determined the means too, okay? And he's calling us to be part of the means through which he fulfills his end, you see. Uh, you know what this doctrine also does? It offers us great 
assurance. You know, not only can we enjoy assurance of salvation, right, because salvation is in God's hand, not in, not in our, you know, efforts, but it can also grant you assurance of God's ongoing love for you, right? And we need that, right? We need to know that God is present and actively uh, upholding us by his gracious hand and, and loving us uh, through practical means. You know, this, this doctrine, I've been, I've become more amazed by it and much more humbled over the years, you know? I thought about this way. If, if God's love was offered to me on the basis of who I am and what I do or what I've done, I would be very nervous because I know who I am. I know my flaws and my weaknesses. I know my sins. I might not know all my sins because there's some sins that are so hidden that I, I myself even don't know. But I, I know enough to know that I am really not that impressive of a person. If you had the power to monitor my personal inner thoughts over the course of, let's say, the past few years, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even need that. You, you would just need the past few months, quite, quite honestly. If you had access to my inner thoughts, guess what? None of you would be here because you would be so discouraged. How can this man be my pastor? That's what you would conclude, right? You would be so discouraged. Oh my God, this is what he thought. But think about this. The fact is that God, he knows me better than anyone, including myself, and yet he loves me the most. Why? How is that possible? Well, it's because his love for me is not based on my own merit. That's the whole point of this doctrine. It's based on God's sovereign choice. It's grace. So if anyone asks me, Pastor, why, did, why do you think God chose you? <laughs> my, my only answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't deserve this. I don't know why he did, but I'm so thankful that he did. Blown away, amazed. Let me share a few quotes, <clears throat> a couple quotes, actually. I got two from Spurgeon, okay? Spurgeon was like a bigger-than-life figure. He's an old Baptist preacher, reformed in his thoughts, uh, had a good sense of humor as well. But uh, he, 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 uh, he had to wrestle with this, too. He didn't, like, immediately agree with everything. He had to wrestle with it like anyone else, and he finally... Uh, came to love, love these doctrines, but this is what he wrote. I think he discovered these truths at age 16, and then he had to kind of grapple with them. Uh, he writes, born as all of us are by nature an Arminian. Uh, I mean, that's also supposed to be a little bit funny. That's, that's how, that's how he, uh, he's thinking. Like, everyone's kind of born an Arminian, because, because, you know, this is how people normally think. I still believe the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself, and though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. 
One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I, saw, I sought the Lord was the answer, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I pray, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I didn't read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Praise the Lord. And here's the more humorous version of Spurgeon. I hope you can all agree with this, by the way. Um, I, I relate to this really well. He writes, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. Right? He's, he's being self-deprecating here. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. I don't know how that affects you. You know, maybe you're someone who always thought that having this really high self-esteem was gonna do you some good, and so maybe this kind of talk discourages you initially. But, you know, the Christian is meant to delight not in self, right? Not in how beautiful or good we are, how impressive we are, but we are called to delight in God and his perfection, his beauty, right, in, this, in the glorious uh, work of our Savior. Right? That, that should be our delight. And so th this is not meant to discourage any of you, right? You should have a very low view of yourself so that you can have a high view of Christ and what he has done for you, right? And that may lift some of you out of your depression, to be honest, right? When you behold Christ and you take your eyes off yourself and you look to Christ and what he has done for you and that becomes your delight, right? your life can change. Let me, let me uh, close. I think I'm done with the slides. Thank you. Um, just a few, few other words before I close. Uh, maybe you can consider this pastoral advice, okay? Number one, these biblical truths, I wanna say, are primarily meant to encourage believers. Right? And I say that because um, it's important to know that these things that we're talking about, they're not to be the, the first things you share when in a conversation with an unbelieving friend or cynic at your work, workplace, perhaps. Okay? So, you know, don't, don't pull this out like as a weapon to kind of beat people up with. Don't, don't do that. Don't be that obnoxious Christian, Okay. You don't know who God's elect are. None of your business either, right? This, this, these doctrines are meant to offer you comfort and peace and hope. Right? It's meant to lift your eyes off yourself and, and to Christ, the God who saved you. Right? Uh, so understand that. Right? But don't, don't, at the same time, don't always try to avoid talking about these things. 
I think most of us are afraid to speak of these kinds of topics because we're afraid. What if someone asks me a question and I can't answer properly? What then? And so we just want to avoid all sorts of difficult topics, right? That's being cowardly. I mean, who says that you have to know everything perfectly and you have to answer every question well? Who said that? God does not expect that from us. So I would just encourage you to answer in the best way you can. Okay? And if you're stuck with the question, if, you really, if you're really stumped and you're stuck, you can just call Pastor Hugh. Okay? Call, <laughs> just call Pastor Hugh. They, they love to answer very academic, scholarly questions, okay? I'm partially kidding. You can call me too or email me. I'd be happy to help out, right? But even I, I, I confess, like, I don't know everything, and I often say, I don't know, okay? Someone asked me a question. I'm not sure. Let me get back to you. Let me ask John Piper, you know? <laughs> Let me go on to YouTube and see what John Piper has to say about this. <laughs> you know, that's fine, you know? We all have our limitations. God is God, right? There's some things that are mysterious. We, we can't fully comprehend with our minds. It's perfectly fine to acknowledge that. I don't know. Good question. But what I don't want you to do is don't neglect or cancel out what God has clearly revealed to you, right? God is sovereign in salvation. You are also responsible, right? How do those two come together harmoniously? I don't have a great answer. It's a mystery, okay? But I'm not gonna negate either one. God is sovereign. I'm not gonna try to be like clever and you know, like try to do these mental gymnastics and try to justify by, by canceling out God's sovereignty. No, God is sovereign. His word says so. We are responsible. Right? So two things are meant to hold together in some mysterious way. Right? That's how Christians should think. Um, I also wanna make it very clear to all of you that a person, and I, I, I thought I did this before, I, I clarified this before, but in case you missed it, a person does not have to believe in the doctrine of election to be counted as God's elect, okay? You follow that? Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, amen? Right? And so while these doctrines are important and while rejecting these doctrines can have negative consequences, and I, I do believe that they, they do for the most part, we should never demand belief in such doctrines as a requirement for salvation. You know, I just had a membership class with over a dozen people at my place yesterday, right? Um, and that's one thing I said. I said, look, I, I, I treasure these doctrines, but I'm never going to require that you believe in these <laughs> to be a member of the church or to count you a Christian. Right? That, would, that would be taking it too far, you see. With that said... I don't think it's ever wrong to encourage others to actually take some time to carefully reflect upon these doctrines because after a while, you'll notice that for many people, these truths become such a, a helpful source of encouragement. It gives them comfort. Right? They become more anchored and secure in God's grace. They become much more God-dependent and God-centered in their thinking. So there are many benefits. But there's wisdom, right? There's wisdom 
that has to be practiced. And so, brothers and sisters, let's not avoid speaking of tulip, but let's be wise about how and when to share it with others. And at a personal level, I hope that all of you would be able to delight in these truths with me. Right? May God use it to bless and strengthen your faith in him. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as we ponder the richness of your grace and the depth of your love, may we become more of a humble people who are more aware of our need for a savior. And may we become a more gracious people because we know that the grace we received was not according to our own will, but yours. We thank you for your great salvation plan that you have revealed to us through your word. We give you all honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So we'll stand together and give God